a pretty straightforward passage of Scripture, pretty hard-hitting, pretty confrontational with regard to the reality of pride in our lives. Our passage of Scripture this morning begins with a great question. And that question gets right to the heart of the main issue in human relationships. Do you remember the question that James posed at the beginning of this passage? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Speaking of a parenting issue, anybody ever have children that quarrel over their possessions? Anyone? Another version puts it this way, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? This is a truly great and compelling question for us to think about. And presuming, right, that we've all been through a conflict or two over the course of our lives, have you ever stopped to think about this? Actually, I meant to say a conflict or 200. Come on now. Thank you, Gerald. <laughs> somebody's, supposed to, somebody's supposed to help me out. That was supposed to be a little bit funny. All right. I'm trying. Seriously, conflict with other people is common to all of us, right? We've all been through it. We've all had an argument with someone. And what James is drawing our attention to right from the outset is that conflicts often, typically result from conflicting desires, conflicting desires. I want what I want, you want what you want, we don't want the same thing, and so we have a conflict. And at the root of those desires, this passage indicates, lies the problem of pride. This passage, James chapter 4, is all about the issue of pride. Because behind and beneath your selfish desires is an attitude of pride. Pride is thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. It's an inflated sense of self-importance. Pride is also one of the devil's doorways into our hearts, and it's the mortal uh, enemy of our unity with others. It's danger and prevalence in our lives are are both, I think, often underestimated. In fact, to indicate uh, to you how serious a problem this is, I want to just share a brief uh, quote, a paragraph from a great book by um, pastor and and author named Floyd McClung. Um, This is an older book called Holiness and the Spirit of the Age. And in his chapter on pride, uh, which is titled The Greatest Hindrance to Holiness, Um, He says this about the danger of pride. He says, The greatest threat to the church today is not the seduction of our doctrine by false teaching, but the seduction of our hearts and minds by the spirit of the age. James wrote, What causes wars and what causes fighting among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members. And pride is at the center of it all. Pride is our most dangerous enemy. Pride is the greatest hindrance to holiness. It is the unseen sin whose effects are found everywhere. 
It is the chief cause of human strife and tragedy. It is the source to which all other forms of sin can be traced. It is the sin that led led to Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden. Ignored and undealt with, pride wreaks havoc in the lives of every person on this planet. So as we consider the words of James this morning on this important subject, let's begin with understanding some of the sources of pride that can capture our hearts and minds, because this is what James is describing for us in chapter 4 of his letter. So first insight that I want to put before you is, is simply this, that there are various sources of pride, all of which lead us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That's the nature of pride. That's the definition of pride, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. But what leads to that? What draws us into that? Well, in this chapter, James uh, contrasts the spirit and mindset of pride with the spirit and mindset of humility. And in so doing, he indicates that there are several sources of pride several indicators or manifestations of pride that we might be familiar with. In fact, he dials in on three specific manifestations of pride that he encountered in his own day. And and bear in mind, this is written 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. And yet, I suggest to you that you're going to find these manifestations of pride are just as common and just as troublesome, just as problematic and just as pervasive here and now, 2,000 years later, as they were when James identified them way back then. So the first one is this. It's pride in our possessions. Pride in our possessions. Why has America become so violent? What's what's the matter with our society? Well, in the beginning verses of this chapter, James gets right to the heart of the issue, and I've mentioned it already. The word that he uses is desires. It's your desires that battle within you. According to James, the, the word, the Greek word actually is edonai, which means pleasures or desires, which feed our sense of pride. So James 4, 1 to 4, again, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What James is highlighting and underscoring for us with these words is the pride of possession, desire for things. Desire is what invades each one of our hearts and minds and corrupts us with a mindset of pride. So this first manifestation that James confronts then has to do with how we think about ourselves with regard to our possessions. If I could give you a glimpse into this way of thinking, essentially the, it amounts to this. The thought goes something like this. I feel good about myself because of what I have. 
And it can be manifested in a thousand different ways. It might have to do with the house you live in, or the car that you drive, or the clothes that you wear, or any number of other possessions. It might have to do with the size of your bank account or your retirement account. People often feel pride because of what they have, what they possess. So this manifestation of pride is preoccupied with self-indulgence. I want what I want. And the sad reality is that we live in a society where self-indulgence has become a supreme value. We see something that we find desirable, and we get it. We buy it. We own it. So, for example, just to give you a picture of something you can latch on to, imagine a young person who, um, who wants to be accepted by their peers. What kind of thinking might preoccupy their mindset to, to, to gain that acceptance? Well, the thinking might go like this. I got to look good. I got to be cool. I got to have the best, right? And yet Jesus says, don't worry about your clothing. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Is that how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow? And is, um, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So I'm giving you an example of how our mindset can be wrapped up in what we possess. For many people in our culture, money or material possessions have become a primary source of identity and pride. The desire for more and more possessions preoccupies our lives, creating jealousy and conflict in our relationship with others. This materialistic manifestation of pride is often characterized by by a very simple self-indulgent thought. I deserve what I want, and I'm going to get it. I'll give you one final example, and I want to show you a picture uh, here. It's a little odd. You're going to wonder what it is. This is a museum in the Philippines where you can find the shoes of former wife of Philippine dictator um, uh, Ferdinand Marcos. Her name was Imelda Marcos, his wife. And when he was finally booted from office back in 1986, maybe some of you remember the story. I remember this. I was in college at the time when this came out in the news. The forces that overthrew him from power went and took, took hold, took possession of the palace where Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos had been living. And you know what they discovered there? Upon taking possession of the palace, they found over 3,000 pairs of shoes belonging to Imelda Marcos. This, by the way, this picture is about 100. So take this picture and multiply it by 30, and you have a visual idea of 3,000 shoes, 3,000 pairs of shoes. That's 6,000 shoes, right? So here's a woman... Listen, here's a woman whose identity was wrapped up in her shoes. 
crazy. It's craziness. It's pride. The pride of possession. That's an extreme example. But what I'm saying is people are like this, right? We can place our identity in any number of things that we possess. So that's one source or manifestation. Here's a second one that James highlights. Look down with me at verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? What's James talking about here? He's talking about the pride that people often take in their position over others. This is about the pride of our position over other people, which leads to judgment. Judgment. So this second example that James highlights has to do with how we think about ourselves in comparison to others. Have have you ever looked at another person and thought, you know, just thought to yourself, maybe not said anything out loud, but at least thought, well, I'm better than they are. That's pride, right? Pride, in this uh, manifestation, thinks like this. I feel good about myself because I'm better than that other person. It's the pride of comparison. And so in this sense, um, this is about self-interest. This manifestation of pride is consumed with self-interest, making me look good, making me feel good in comparison to others. And you know what's ironic about this particular manifestation of pride is that it's equally common among those who struggle with insecurity and those who are overly secure. Have you noticed this? Some people think way too highly of themselves and they have a sense of arrogance, a sense that they're better than everyone else. Other people think way too lowly of themselves and they have to use comparison to make themselves feel better. So in either case, it's a manifestation of pride. It may be that we genuinely feel we're better than others or that we want to make ourselves feel that we're better than others because of our own insecurities. In either case, this manifestation of pride uses comparison and judgment to look down at other people. C.S. Lewis once put it this way in speaking of pride. He said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. I love the words here of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, where he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's the power of humility, contrasted with the problem of pride, the pride of comparison. And of course, as I've said already, this particular form or manifestation of pride often comes with a sense of judgment toward other people. For example, A few common 
uh, examples or manifestations of this form of pride might be racism, where someone feels that they're better than others based on the color of their skin, or nationalism, similarly, where someone feels that they're better than others based on their country of origin or the language that they speak. In either case, it's misplaced pride, a misplaced sense of our own self-importance in relation to others. Let's go on to number three. Number three that James identifies, a third source or manifestation of pride, is pride in our own plans for future accomplishments. Pride in our own plans for future accomplishments. I'll share a little story that illustrates this well, a story about former heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali. And the story is told that on one occasion, in his heyday as the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Muhammad Ali was seated on a 747 flight that was about to taxi down the runway for takeoff. The flight attendant walked by and she noticed, looking, that Ali didn't have his seatbelt on. So she kindly said to him, Sir, please fasten your seatbelt for takeoff. Ali looked up at her proudly and responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And without a moment's hesitation, she stared back at him and she said, Superman don't need no plane. What does that story indicate? It indicates a sense of pride, right, that he had in his own future and in his accomplishments, in his power and and possibilities as a person. So this last source of pride that James pinpoints for us is what we might call boasting about tomorrow, presuming upon tomorrow. James 4, 13 to 17, the end of the passage. Now listen, You who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So this manifestation of pride has to do with how we think about ourselves with respect to our plans for the future. It amounts to the notion, I feel good about myself because of what I'm going to do or what I'm going to become. So this example has to do then with a boasting or bragging about what we plan to accomplish because it thereby fails to recognize that every day of our lives is a gift from God and and is really in God's hands. Our future belongs to him. This is about self-reliance. right? So if you're listening closely, maybe you've recognized that I'm talking about different manifestations of self-absorption, self-interest, right? We, there's there's um, self-indulgence, there's self-interest, and there's self-reliance. And all of them are connected to pride. 
As James puts it, we are, we are nothing but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Every time you want to remind yourself to stay humble, just think of that passage. Remember those words. I am nothing but a mist that appears and then vanishes. Or here's another idea. This is a, a helpful reminder to me. Every once in a while, I come back to it. I want you to just imagine for a moment kind of an unusual picture, an unusual scenario. Imagine you're driving along and you look out the window and, or walking along and you, you suddenly see a turtle on top of a fence post. What's the thought that might go through your mind? How did it get there? Right, precisely, right? There's a, a famous quote from a man named Alex Haley. He says, anytime you see a turtle up on top of a fence post, you know he had some help getting there, right? It would be crazy, absolutely crazy. I'm going to act this out just for fun because it'll keep you um, paying attention, right? Might, might be dangerous. No? Okay, all right. You talked me out of it. <laughs> no, what, if I were standing on this stool, right? It's a poor example. But if I were a turtle up on this stool, I might be saying like, look at me, look at me. Aren't I great? Look at me up on this stool look, or up on this fence post. But that turtle is failing to recognize that it had some help getting there. Right? So the whole point here of this last few verses in James chapter 4 is to remind us that everything we accomplish is by the grace of God. And it's, it's, it's God's work in and through our lives that is so critical for us to remember and be mindful of if we want to stay humble. So those are three different sources or manifestations of pride. There's um, the pride of, of our possessions, the pride of comparison with others, and the pride of our, our future plans. Let me just remind you that, though, that this is not an exhaustive list. These are just some examples. There are other sources of pride as well that can find their way into our hearts and minds. In any case, let's talk about the results of pride. What does pride lead to? What, what happens when we fall into pride? Well, here's the way that James summarizes it. The result of pride is that it blinds us from seeing our own faults and separates us from God's favor. Anybody want to be there? No. That's right, no. You're probably all familiar with Proverbs 16, 18. It's, a, uh, it's an oft-repeated verse from Proverbs. You, in fact, you could probably fill in the blank for me, right? Pride goes before the fall or destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. We've heard that probably from our parents growing up. We've heard it in Sunday school. Perhaps we've read it time and again working through the scriptures. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. In other words, there are negative consequences to walking in pride. Beware. Be careful. This is a warning, right? And it's similar to the warning that James is offering us. 
So let's talk about how pride really operates in our lives. Here's, here's the funny thing about pride, right? And this goes right back to what I was just describing a few moments ago. Most of us, when we think about pride, we can probably quickly identify someone in our sphere of influence that we would describe as proud, particularly proud or arrogant. I won't ask you to tell me who your mind goes to, but I'm sure all of us can think of someone that we might identify that way. Have you noticed, here's the irony, have you noticed that pride always seems easier to spot in others than in ourselves? That's because of how it blinds us, right? It blinds us. It closes our eyes to true self-awareness. The truth is that even in the church, Pride is much more common within us than we may want to admit or than we often realize. Again, did, did it occur to you that James is writing these words? I mean, it almost sounds like he's writing to unbelievers, doesn't it? No. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to followers of Christ. And, and the implication, if you stop and think about it, is that faith and pride are not mutually exclusive. You can be a person of faith in Jesus Christ and still fall into pride. You're not exempt from it. You're not immune from it. You don't automatically get a a pass. You don't automatically become a humble person when you decide to follow Jesus. We have to work at eradicating the mindset of pride from our lives. St. Augustine put it this way, Other sins find their vent in the accomplishment of evil deeds, whereas pride lies in wait for good deeds. And that's precisely why this is sometimes a difficult issue for us as followers of Christ. Sometimes we can take pride in our own goodness. We might do something right or even godly. And then it's immediately ruined because we fall into an attitude of pride over it. Now, here's the real kicker. Here's the real kicker right here. And James gets right to the heart of it. We're going to look at the verse in just a moment. But what I want you to see is that what James is essentially describing is that the problem of pride, the real problem, is that it puts a block in our lives with regard to receiving the grace and favor of God. Of God. Because it blinds us to our fundamental need for God's grace, because we think we're good, I'm good, falling into pride means falling out of God's favor. And it doesn't get any clearer than the words that James quotes. Listen again, James 4, verses 5 and 6. Do you think the scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit that he's caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? This is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Now, with those words in mind, just um, turn your attention quickly with me to another similar passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Peter writes, 
In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So here we have two different New Testament authors, James and Peter, both quoting the same line. Where does it come from? Maybe some of you know. It comes from the Proverbs again, Proverbs 3.34 in this case. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, shows favor to the humble. So the centerpiece then of what James is trying to communicate to us in this entire chapter has to do with this very notion that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So if you want the favor of God over your life, you better figure out how to humble yourself. Because if you continue to walk in pride, God will oppose you. That's how significant this lesson is. Andrew Murray once said it this way, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Now that may be, you know, I don't know, it's fair to say that that's an exaggeration or not, but I think it's a compelling idea because it illustrates very clearly the conflict between pride and the favor of God the presence of God. The point is this, if you want God on your side or if you want to be on his side, you better take the danger of pride seriously. You better look long and hard at your own mind, at your own heart. You better be self-aware of where and how pride creeps into your thinking so that you can root it out the moment it pops up. By causing us to think too highly of ourselves, pride Um, pride essentially leads to losing sight of our need for God's grace. And it also, by the way, causes us, of course, as I said earlier, to think less of others. So we think more of ourselves and we think less of others. In this way, pride gets in the way of our ability to demonstrate genuine love and respect. It causes us to become judgmental and even prejudiced toward others. It causes us to tear one another down rather than to build one another up. Now, I want to close this morning with one last insight then. I want to flip this around and have you think with me about humility and the nature of genuine humility. Because again, as with each of these steps to freedom, We have to understand the negative before we can embrace the positive. We have to understand what it is that we need to be convicted of. We have to be confronted with the reality of what needs to change. And then we have to see what it is that God wants us to change into. So pride, as we've just explained, is thinking too highly of ourselves. Humility, on the other hand, keeps us aware of our own faults, our need for God's grace, and the interests of other people. Three significant characteristics that I want you to consider. Humility keeps us aware of our own faults, our need for God's grace, and the interests of others.
The only antidote to the poison of pride is humility. Paul says in Philippians 3.3, put no confidence in the flesh. I love the definition uh, of humility that I've heard. I don't know who came up with it. I I couldn't figure out where it first came from because it's been so often repeated by different authors. But somebody came up with this phrase, and I think it's brilliant. Humility is confidence properly placed in God. Humility is confidence properly placed in God. It's thinking of yourself properly in relation both to God and to other people. It's having the right attitude about yourself. It doesn't view everyone else as inferior or superior, but in Christian love sees others as worthy of preferential treatment. There's an old story told about a king who ruled over Denmark, Norway, and England over a thousand years ago. And his rule has become legendary because of his great humility. He was a wise ruler. His name was King Canute. He worked diligently to make the lives of his subjects better. And as a result, he was surrounded by people who adored him. And they sought to gain his influence. They they sought prominence with the king because he was so greatly admired for his, good, his goodness and his benevolence to the people that he ruled over. So according to this ancient story, eventually King Canute grew weary of the continual flattery that people kept um, you know, pushing upon him, and he determined to put an end to it. This is genuine humility. He didn't want to put up with it anymore. He was sick and tired of people flattering him and, and sort of puffing him up. So here's what he did. Get this, he ordered, and this is a true story, he ordered that his throne be carried out to the seashore and gathered all of his entourage around him. So get this picture in your mind. Here's King Canute, his throne, his his chair is carried out to the seashore. He's seated upon his throne at the seashore, and all of his court and all of the people that worked for him are gathered around him. Then... By the sea, the king stood up and he commanded the tide not to come in. And yet soon, he sat back down, soon the waters were lapping around his legs because the tide didn't listen. According to one historian's account, As people began to realize that the king's words had not been heeded, King Canute rose up from his throne and he said this to everyone who could hear, everyone gathered around him, all of his loyal subjects. Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and the sea obey by eternal laws. Isn't that a great story? That's a man of genuine humility. Power had not corrupted his mindset. Humility always recognizes the gracious provision of God, the power of God at work in the realm of human accomplishments. It affirms the truth 
of Jesus' statement that apart from him, we can do nothing, right? When we have an attitude of humility, we recognize our weaknesses and our need for God's help. But humility isn't just having a right attitude. It's not just about right thinking. It starts there, but it has to be exhibited by actions that demonstrate what we think and how we think about ourselves. So you can claim to think humbly all that you want, but you have to actually act humbly for others to believe you. You have to demonstrate humility in how you relate to other people. Micah 6.8, again, another classic verse, challenges us, right? He who has shown you, O mortal, what is good. He has shown you, O mortal, what, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. How, how do we do that? How do we walk humbly with God? What kind of actions flesh out an attitude of genuine humility? Well, here's where, again, I think James is so helpful because really what what James offers us is a roadmap, some specific actions that we can commit ourselves to that will demonstrate humility. James 4, 7 to 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. What James is giving us with these words are, are quite honestly, action steps. Action steps. These are some practical things that we can do, that we can put into practice to demonstrate humility, to embrace humility. So what should we do when we identify the the problem of pride creeping into our mindset or into our behaviors? There's a, a list here of 10 actions if you've counted, submit to God, resist the devil, come near, draw near to God, wash your hands. That doesn't mean like literally go to the bathroom and wash your hands. You know, this is symbolic language. What James is saying is get clean before God. Get, identify the dirtiness in your soul, in your mind. Wash your hands and purify your hearts. And then comes this, right? When's the last time you put this into practice? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Seems kind of crazy, really, because we all want to be filled with the joy of the Lord. We all want to walk in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Is James advocating that we should live this way? Grieving, mourning, wailing, changing our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. No, he's not saying that you have to walk around that way all the time. But what he's saying is, think about this, think closely. What he's saying is, when you identify pride in your life, this is how you get rid of it. You have to mourn over the presence of pride in your own heart and mind. You have to see it for how serious it is. 
And then you have to die to it. You have to put it to death. Grieve, mourn, and wail over your pride. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom because that's repentance in action. Finally, action number 10, humble yourselves and God will lift you up. I think all of those previous actions lead to this one, number 10, right? All of them feed into humility. Each one of these words are a picture of humility in action. And the result of these actions is declared in verse 10. When you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. That's the promise of God's word. Let's pray.